Welcome to the Good Bad Mad podcast, a show that's here to share the ins and outs of creative careers, connecting the aspirational with the experienced, with your host, me, Meg Ellis. My guest for this episode is theatrical writer and director P. Burton Morgan of Meta Theatre. We talk about their journey into the arts, learning to write and direct theatre and musicals, and their upcoming original musical, The Rhythmics. Hope you enjoy. Morning. Morning. How are you doing, Poppy? I am good. I'm pretty tired, but I'm here. I get up at five at the moment, so I've been up for hours. Why? Uh, there's so, because I'm the writer and the director of the show, like, there's no, I'm, I'm rehearsing for like 10 a.m. till 9 p.m. Like, there's not enough hours in the day if I don't also get up at five to like, the like, rewrites, the score updates, the like, stuff about costume, like, it's relentless. You know what? That's commitment. That's commitment because I like my sleep too much. I will never do that. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time there. <laughs> no, my pleasure. So, so what we like to do on 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 these chats is find out a little bit about your journey um, yeah. to present. Find out how you became a theatrical artistic director when you started writing, when you started directing, all all those kind of things. So we can learn a bit about your journey and. Nice. Uh, History so, of me. Yes, basically, basically, and kind of understand what were the good bits and what were the bad bits and what were the kind of mad crazy bits along the way. How does that sound? Sounds perfect. Yeah. So should we start right at the beginning? When did you kind of first get introduced to theatre and kind of start having that feeling of, oh, this is something I want to dedicate my life to? Um. So I, like a lot of people, I got into theatre through doing Amdram as a child, um, as a performer, mm -hmm. and for quite a long time thought, actually for a, long, for a while I thought I was going to be a vet, and then I was like, no, no, I'm going to be a performer uh, in musical theatre, um, but then ended up uh, going off to university and, and doing a degree in politics, philosophy, economics, and kind of drifting sideways into directing, and then even later sort of drifting sideways again into writing. I mean, there's definitely a journey. So do you remember what the first kind of show you saw was? So, I mean, that would be a really good, uh, it would be really good if there, if there was a show, that a specific show that was like, this was my seminal show, but I don't yeah. think I want to be honest. I think we went, we were really lucky and at school, we went on quite a few, I grew up in the West Country and we went on quite a few theatre trips to a really wide range of stuff. Like I remember seeing like a production of The Seagull and then we would also go to see Panto and I must have occasionally come up to London to see a musical. So mm -hmm. I think it was quite a varied theatrical, yeah. you know, hodgepodge of, yeah. which probably has influenced the fact that I work across loads of like disciplines and genres now. Yeah. And did you have an artistic, like creative family or were you like this odd little child who just popped up? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm definitely an odd little child. Um, <laughs> my family, so my family are quite musical. My dad has, my dad plays, uh, a million instruments and the, the show the rhythmics is kind of loosely autobiographically based on me and my dad mm -hmm. but he has always played a lot of instruments and my mum used to sing in an a cappella group so sort of between them there was quite a lot of musical uh influences but not really theatrical you know much more sort of you know he played in bands and he played in orchestras and she was in this a cappella singing group so the theatre thing just came from 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 no from me yeah and then along along the way, you discovered this passion for politics, which I guess has kind of found its way into your your work now. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was really interesting. I, I ended up going to university doing politics, philosophy, and economics, mostly philosophy, to be honest, um, kind of knowing that I did want to go into a career in theatre, thinking at that point I still wanted to be an actor. Um, but that just felt like the most interesting kind of, in terms of stretching my brain, that felt like the most interesting thing. But it absolutely has influenced everything I've done since because my work is so inherently political. Mm -hmm. and, and I think theatre, all theatre is essentially philosophical because if you're not asking like the big questions of why we're here and ethics and that kind of stuff, like that's, I mean, obviously conflict is the heart of theatre, but I think philosophy is like really wrapped up in that. And a bit of economics is really helpful in knowing how budgets work. You know what? <laughs> totally true <laughs> so true so when did you kind of well you say you started out as an actress um yes. I, I guess a lot of people get introduced into to theater that way but when did you kind of start discovering the other roles and and what drew you to them over over being on stage so I think you know like most people unless you have a really theatrical family like the roles of writer and director they don't even exist in your head you know the, the our exposure to the arts we see performers obviously because they're the visible part of the performance so that was the kind of entry point as it is for a lot of people but uh very quickly I well at university very quickly I think I, I was invited to co-direct something um because one of because the director was also in it uh, and I very quickly realized that actually I was much more, I had much more creative capacity um, shaping a vision rather than being kind of one part of that vision. Uh, and then, you know, and therefore the kind of the move into writing was, uh, was also a very natural progression because in terms of creating a universe and shaping a universe, you know, the writer's role, like that's where the thing is conceived. So for about 10 years, I absolutely was a writer, but because I was mostly doing adaptations and sort of sometimes quite physical devised things, I wasn't, I hadn't put myself in that box of writer and I still thought, I'm a director who, you know, adapts this and that and devises this and that. And then it wasn't until I had children that I really started writing like purely original stuff and going, these are stories that aren't being told. So I'm gonna write them down because no one else is. And then I was like, oh, I guess I'm a writer now too. <laughs> I know it's quite tricky isn't it with these labels um and and picking and choosing mostly nowadays people are slashes you know I'm a writer yeah. slash director slash producer slash <laughs> absolutely yeah absolutely and I think that's you know really healthy because of course we all contain multitudes we all have skills across different things and you know one day we wear one hat one day we wear another hat one day we wear five hats and the hats fall off <laughs> It is so true. Sometimes it's just, yeah, it becomes a bit overwhelming. So what was that journey like, leaving uni and, and deciding you wanted to kind of pursue this? Um, how, how did you start? So we, so my theatre company, Meta Theatre, um, which I founded, I founded it at university with my then boyfriend, now husband. So that was 17 years ago. So we'd been together for a year and then we set up Meta Theatre I guess it must have been in our final year um and with that you know naive idealism that political students have we were like yeah we're gonna change the world uh and we're gonna run our theatre company but 17 years later here we are still doing it so we must have done something right yeah but we, um, yeah so we left university and essentially at that point I mean I say theatre company it was you know a name and a website and probably at that point not a very good website um and we just started making you know we we made that leap from making student theatre to making kind of fringe theatre in London and then over time 
got more adept at getting arts council funding and all that stuff started touring and so the work got bigger and longer and bigger budgets and more resource um and sort of has grown and grown over the last 17 years but aside from that you know running the company and writing and directing for that you know we've both pursued freelance careers as well so he's a designer and he trained at motley design school before it closed down so he you know he does he's has and continues to do a lot of work as a freelance set and lighting and video designer um, I write for other people for commission and I direct freelance and I did you know when I first left I did quite a lot of assistant directing and associate directing you know for touring companies and in the West mm -hmm. End and for opera companies which quite often you know especially in opera the opera is really well paid so you could do a kind of really well paid opera assisting gig and then use that to kind of subsidize the fact that you were doing a slightly fringy thing where no one was being paid so that was like the first sort of five years and it just built over time I think we were very good at like living off peanut butter sandwiches and mm. having no living standards so yes. it didn't matter that we were earning basically no money although we're still not now it's quite lovely that you've got that partner with you on on the journey because sometimes it can feel very lonely so it's quite nice that you're doing it as a team I think to be honest like we might not still be going I mean it's touch and go every year we're like is it time to fund <laughs> the company it's too much especially now post-pandemic but, and we also have two small kids, so that makes it even harder. But the fact that there's two of us, like, it's just a support kind of partner. And, you know, we both have different skills. So in terms of the running of the company, I'm really happy and confident writing funding applications, talking to venues and programmers and kind of getting the work on. But he's super amazing with, like, the accounts and budgets and spreadsheets. And so we kind of divide our roles quite cleanly, which means there's, a, you know, there's a great division of labour. Mm -hmm. Because you mentioned it earlier, it, it sounds like Arts Council and Arts Council funding was quite significant in your development. Would you say that's... It was really significant. No, it was absolutely crucial. I mean, the truth is um, we wouldn't have moved because the work we make is so is often like it's almost always original. And even if it's an adaptation, essentially, it's like a title, but it's a completely original piece. And we and it's very cross art form. So quite often there's like a fusion of circus and dance or dance and sign language or puppetry and video projection. Um, and that kind of work really takes time. So you can't do that without a kind of subsidized model because it's not something you can just go here, two weeks rehearsal, boom, we're on. So what, quite often the shows are made over really several years and there'll be an R&D week and then some more rewriting and then more R&D and then a relatively long rehearsal process. So we were really lucky that I think politically the work that we make really aligns with the Arts Council values. So for 10 years, we were reliably getting kind of project funding, which would allow us to make these shows and tour these shows all over the country. Um, I mean, no shade on the Arts Council, but they haven't funded the Rhythmics, the thing we're doing now. And it's absolutely, it's sort of destroying the company because you can't make work of this scale um, with these production values without that level of subsidy. But I, you know, I get the Arts Council are really stretched as well. So there's no easy answer to that. That's why every single year we're like, maybe it's time to fold the company. Which yeah, no, I get it. It, it, it is kind of the, the balancing scales for so many um, emerging writers and directors in, in the UK. It, 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 it lives and dies on that, that Arts Council application. So it's... Um, Interesting to hear you put it into words, however many years into running your company. Talking about developing your work and talking about it taking quite a time, how, how, what, what's your process in terms of 
deciding on a project, seeing whether it's got credibility, commerciality, like how, how do you go about that kind of initial stages? Of- oh, that's a great question. So I think the first thing is I'm like horrendously prolific. Like for my, for my writer friends who, you know, take a long time over a project, they hate me uh, because I'm generally, you know, I'm working on maybe like 10 different scripts at a time. Mm-hmm. So at various different stages. Um, so in terms of the kind of the credibility thing, uh, I just have unwavering faith in the in my artistic brilliance. <laughs> so basically every idea I have, once I once I start putting pen to paper or fingers to iPad, I'm like, yeah, this is a great idea. At some point it will happen. Um, and generally everything I, so everything I write does happen. Uh, I mean, maybe that's like blind, just blind faith. But um, But in terms of the kind of the process from like, thought to page to stage, uh, it really varies project by project. So the rhythmics, which is what we're rehearsing now, um, has actually, for a new, completely original new British musical, has had a very short gestation period. Um, but I think it's because, so I, my composer and co-lyricist is Ben Glastone, he and I met on a musical theatre writing programme called BML, Book Music Lyrics, um, four years ago. Uh, and we started writing this project as in the second year, you kind of come up with an idea and you write a musical together with another writing partner uh, and you write eight songs over the course of a year. And so because we did that, it, it kind of had a, a, a faster writing trajectory than some shows where, you know, you're doing it in bits and bobs or you get commissioned to do a bit of it and then you do a bit more. So once we had those eight songs, which everyone was really, you know, all of our kind of colleagues there were really excited about, we just cracked on and finished writing the whole thing and then we were really lucky we did a again got some arts council funding and did a two-week workshop in december 2019 almost exactly two years ago and i've never you know the process by which a musical is put on you know you write it there might be a kind of sing through read through there'll be rewrites there'll be maybe a week workshop or a two-week workshop there might be more rewrites there might be more workshops there might be a first production uh, it can be a really long slow you know typically five-year process we did that two week workshop and the audience response was like, you could go into rehearsals tomorrow for this. So we knew we had something really, uh, you know, powerful and affecting and kind of something that was already quite robust, sort of musically and dramaturgically. And at that stage, um, Katie Lipson came on board as kind of co-producer and she could immediately see the kind of commercial potential of it because it's got very strong, you know, it feels a bit like for Monty, Calendar Girls, those sort of classic British um, comedies that are about kind of community overcoming adversity uh, is the sort of heart of it. And in our case, through rhythmic gymnastics. Um, <laughs> so if the pandemic hadn't come along, in all honesty, I think it would have gone into production in 2020 or yeah, last year. Um, mm-hmm. And there, so in a way it was very, it was kind of production ready, which is why we kind of leapt at this chance to bring it to Solid Playhouse this Christmas. Mm-hmm. When I think about other shows, you know, actually from starting to write it to first production, I think it will have been like two and a half, three years, which is really, really short. So I fully anticipate we'll put it in front of an audience and we'll probably go, oh, actually we'll change this, this and this. And maybe like next year it will tour and eventually it'll go to the West End. And of course the show will kind of evolve and there'll be new iterations in that time. But we've just been really lucky that it's been quite plain sailing for this process. It's got some momentum Uh, behind it. Yeah. And also that Ben and I, you know, in between Ben and I wrote a whole other show um, during lockdown, a kind of digital musical. So we've now collaborated 
quite a lot, which means that we really know each other. You know, some, I've had shows, a few shows, where you get really far down the line with a collaborator and then you turn around and the composer's like, actually, I'm the wrong, wrong fit for this show. Or you're like, this music is the wrong fit for this show. And you don't always know that until you've got really far down the line. And so those, I mean, that, those kind of processes are hard, but obviously then you're kind of back to square one and going, mm. right, start from scratch with music. And generally the music is the slowest sort of part of the process yeah so I'm lucky Ben Glassstone is crazy crazy quick like me so we both just you know we can both get together and kind of write a song in 10 minutes which all my songwriter friends who take longer will be like oh I hate you <laughs> it sounds like you've almost got no um no fear or at least don't let it kind of affect I, your I, decisions <laughs> that's absolutely the heart of it I absolutely have no fear and I think part of it is because I was a director for 10 years before I started thinking of myself as a writer as a director you or as the director that I am you know I cut quite fast and loose with other people's writing you know when I was doing adaptations of Shakespeare adaptations or whatever you know it would be what's the story we're trying to tell and why we're we trying to tell it mm. so there's no which then meant when I became a writer I don't have any preciousness about you know if the words don't work then we'll cut them and also if the words are a bit crap to begin with I don't mind they're just words like some people are incredibly protective of the work and afraid because they're bearing their soul. And I'm like, it's just words, guys. Mm. It's fine. And if they don't work, we'll make them better. I mm. think the biggest block to people is, is that fear of failure. And I'm just not afraid of the words being crap. I'm like, once we get them out, then we can see what we've made. And if it needs revision, that you know, musicals aren't written, they're rewritten. And we can rewrite it until it's good enough. So I think the, yeah, I mean, again, all my friends with writer's block hate me because they're like, oh, just you just do it, it just flows out of you like a tap but the truth is it's because I um because there is no fear I'm like they are only words have you always been that way or is that something you had to learn no I think I've always been that way and I think it's probably really annoying for the people who don't <laughs> have that um but you know it just means I mean I think it's a really essentially uh any of that stuff about ego and kind of the self getting in the way is always going to be a barrier to creating great art like if you can get your ego out of the way then you know you're you've already done you've already won kind of won the battle as it were mm -hmm. so I think I try really hard to just go what's the story and again because I came to writing relatively speaking later it wasn't that I was at 18 thinking I want to be a writer and I want to write this and da, 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 da. like it came at a point where I had something to say and I knew exactly what that thing was so there wasn't really people who sit around going oh I want to be a writer I'm like what does that mean like either you have something to say and you know what it is and therefore just say it. And if, if it's not quite polished, you know, polish it or to go do something else. <laughs> that sounds really harsh. No, I see what you mean. You need to find... If you know what you want to you say... Know, you need easy. to have that self-exploration and have that voice before you can actually put it on page. Yeah, and of course, that's not the only way. And I'm not saying everyone has to... You know, people's minds work in different ways. And I think for some people, they have this sense of an itch that needs to be scratched and they can't articulate it and that process is long because they're exploring you know quietly in their head whereas I'm really happy to just get something out of my head immediately and explore it you know mm. out in the world um but yeah fear and ego are kind of the two big I would say the two biggest barriers to, to those things so if you can just you know put them to one side and crack on then win-win if only that were a switch. <laughs> yeah, I know. This is why it's not good for me to talk about these things because other people are like, oh, you make it sound so easy. 
I think the thing is, because I'm always open, you know, of course, the nature of those processes where you do a week of R&D and then you sit back from it, you do some rewrites, that we build those structures so that there's space for things to evolve and change. I remember really early on, you know, when we maybe didn't, hadn't had that much fun from the Arts Council, but a bit, they said to us, you, you know, this work shows so much potential, but essentially what we're seeing in, in production is almost like week three of rehearsals. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, that's true because we only had three weeks of rehearsals. <laughs> and that was the point where I started going, actually, the nature of this work, it is complex and it is nuanced and it does take time to, to find the kind of the best version of itself. And, and so we kind of took them at their word. And from then on, we were like, okay, so we need six weeks of rehearsal. I mean, we don't have that right now. And I wish we did, but actually knowing, like respecting your process and respecting it's gonna take this long to get it to where it needs to be um, mm-hmm. is a, you know, the, the, I mean, of course that requires a certain level of kind of confidence to say, actually, no, we need this. We need this level of resource. We need this level of time to achieve that. But I think if you have unwavering self-belief in the brilliance of your work, then uh, then you kind of just make that case and sort of people go with it. I love it. So, t- so tell me about the rhythmics. When did that one start and what possessed you to write about rhythmic gymnastics? So I love rhythmic gymnastics. Um, so uh, we... I mean, in a way, it, of course, it's not really about rhythmic gymnastics. It's about a man learning to commit to being a father and to just commit generally in life. And so the rhythmic gymnastics is a vehicle through which for him to learn community and togetherness and trust and all of those really important values that you know the world could do with remembering right now. Um, but also, I did gymnastics as a child, like many people, and I um, the ribbon, you know, the ribbons in rhythmic gymnastics, I put them into all of my shows one way or another. Like we did Jungle Book and we used them for like the fire with Shere Khan. I did a version of The Little Mermaid and this moment where she got her legs, there was this explosion of these like red menstrual ribbons, we called them. Like she was getting <laughs> so like I'm, I've always been slightly obsessed with uh, gymnastic ribbons and their kind of their visual potential because they're such like brilliant objects. Um, but also Ben, you know, it was very much a joint project for Ben and he was really, uh, he's a little older than me and he was really interested in exploring that kind of midlife crisis of masculinity thing and sort of toxic masculinity and the world, you know, the hyper feminine world of rhythmic gymnastics felt like a really a joyous and absurd counterpoint to that. So it really like, it creates some amazing sort of juxtapositions, these like burly, very ordinary working class Manchester Mancunian blokes in this world of rhythmic gymnastics and pointy little ballet shoes on their feet and you know being learning incredibly graceful balletic kind of choreography so uh so it's a joy really I mean it's a match made you know what it sounds brilliant and it sounds exactly what um I think people need right now is a bit of fun it like with like good messages but a bit of fun <laughs> absolutely. and I think you know it's so nice rehearsing I mean it absolutely is a comedy I've never been in a rehearsal room with so much like laughter the whole time so it's really funny but as well you know and it could just be really funny and then that could be enough but there's a, there are loads of plot lines that are incredibly and I can't don't want to give any spoilers but basically the whole it's a very ensemble-led show really and every single character has quite a kind of roller coaster of emotions in terms of you know, high stakes, life and death moments in terms of 
relationships blossoming that you feel you know you're fully belly laughing one minute and the next you're in floods of tears and it's like a very cathartic extreme roller coaster of emotions that I think kind of get ticks like all the boxes of like I laughed I cried there was a backflip um there was some amazing choreography it's got everything the harmonies the music how many talked about music like nine part harmonies that just make your soul like open yeah. so it is I mean it's the best show we've ever done <laughs> I'm very excited to see it. How um how have you found, I guess, learning how to write lyrics and and that process? Great question. So I, well, where I met Ben, co-composer and co-lyricist, uh, composer and co-lyricist of um of Rhythmics, was on this musical theatre writing course called Book Music and Lyrics. Mm-hmm. So before that point, I definitely had written quite a few lyrics for various shows that were not necessarily musicals, but were sort of like circus shows with songs in here and there. Um, And I was just sort of going on instinct with no real knowledge of craft. Um, But the, I mean that, you know, the BML training, you know, that's been four years of really rigorous, really craft-based, you know, there were books, there are books out there. There are several books on how to write musicals, you know, song structure, things about perfect rhyme and perfect rhyme like it can it it's quite a technical it can be quite a technical thing which really appeals to the kind of detail oriented side of my brain um but also I genuinely think um like ability to like hear rhyme instantly and sort of think in that way is a sort of some people are born with it so like I've inher- I know I've inherited that from my dad who just has that skill I have that skill one of my children has that skill and you can if you set up a rhyme he can just finish it so I think that some people are, not that it's innate, but I mean, and, and of course everyone can kind of develop these skills, but I do think some people have an ear, just like composers have an ear for like hearing a melody on the wind and like yeah. translating it onto a thing. I think lyricists, you know, have that same ear. So, but also Ben, my co-lyricist is an extraordinary lyricist. So between the two of us, you know, every lyric is like, hopefully finely, finely honed and, you know, mm. very tight. So in, in comparison to you writing the book, which is just like, just get it out on, on paper and change it in rehearsals and change it in performances, like y- your lyric writing is much more specific. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's probably, the thing is that the, the, for me, I discover who the characters are really through lyric. For me, like the musical, the heart of the musical are the songs. So, and this is annoying sometimes to composers, but I would always prefer to write the lyric before I've written the book scene around it. Mm-hmm. Because once the lyric exists, for me, the character exists, and then the book scene can support and be an effective ramp into that song. Um, you know, quite often composers are like, please, can you write the entire book so we can know, so we can be absolutely sure those are the song points before we, because as I say, music often takes the longest. They don't want to be like, I've written a song and then we go, oh, dramaturgically we were wrong and that should be cut and that should go there and da, da, da. Um, so there's always a bit of back and forth on that. But I think with uh, with Rhythmics, because it was it started life as a writing exercise in BML, we started with these eight songs mm-hmm. and just kind of synopsis of story structure. Um, and in fact, you know, the the, and this is a beautiful thing that arguably one of the best songs in the show um, is a duet for two of the, um, let's say, like supporting characters. So they're like the, the probably the smallest roles in the show, um, because very originally that song was written for the lead character, and then as the story evolved, we're like, 
that song isn't appropriate for him anymore because of the way the story structure has gone. But it's our best song, so we have to find a place for it. And then it evolved and became this duet for these other two characters. And it's such a gorgeous song. And actually, had we not gone through that process of discovering that song and the character coming out of it, even though the character then evolved and, and the song was left behind like a kind of chrysalis, like a, or like a snake's dead skin, the song, you know, could could move across and became a beautiful thing for the other two characters. So it's a really, I guess, iterative process. But in terms of the lyric crafting, yes, that, that there's a lot of back and forth with me and Ben. So mm-hmm. sometimes uh, he'll start on a lyric, sometimes I'll start on a lyric. It would depend a bit actually on the cat. There were certain characters where if it was drawn from his lived experience, like midlife crisis-y stuff, it might, an initial lyric might come from him. And if it was say, the teenage daughter or one of the other characters and it was sort of a, a trauma moment that would tend yeah. to come from I love a trauma like, ballad. oh I can pipe in here <laughs> so um so and then but then we were you know we are uber um in a in a loving supportive way and respectful way we are uber critical of each other's um lyrics so without you know again without any ego just going that's not clear that's not strong enough rhyme um you know so we chip away and chip away and chip away and and I think interestingly I think the fact that that work has been done so rigorously up to now there haven't been a lot of lyric changes in rehearsal there's been more you know little cuts and nips and tucks to the to the book scenes um and lyrics have been pretty resilient which hopefully means we did our job well did the did the story change quite a lot over over that lockdown period after your first um performance or, or or did it did you put it to one side well, we sort of did put it to one side because the response to the workshop in 2019 had been so like, you could just start rehearsals tomorrow. We're like, oh, great, we're kind of done. Um, but interestingly, uh, Katie, coming on board as co-producer, had a provocation to flesh out. So, so you know, the two main characters are Grey, Graham, this slightly crap, hapless single dad, and then Silver, who later becomes Sylvia, his uh, teenage daughter, and Katie was like, Silver's arc is not as developed as it could be. Um, so actually, through lockdown, we wrote in an entirely new character that was a kind of best friend figure for Silver, which meant two brand new numbers. And they're the most, they're like massive production numbers. They're the most ambitious numbers in the show. Uh, so that was a really useful sort of producer's note. And it came from, a, it, I mean, it came from a kind of feminist place, really, which was that just, you know, make sure Silver, that character doesn't exist to support um, to simply support kind of Graham as the lead, mm. that you know, it's, it's, it feels like an equal thing. She's got an, an arc entirely separate to his arc rather than just being there, you know. And there's always that thing of, you know, does it pass the Bechdel test? Yes, it does. Um, so I'm really glad that, you know, to have that provocation from her because the show is much richer and also a kind of bigger spectacle because of it. So thanks for those notes, Katie. <laughs> like, where do you start with directing? So I'd, I'd say for the directing, it's incredibly structured. It's possibly overstructured okay. um, because so in a dream world where we'd have six weeks, there'd be a little bit more time for kind of play and exploration and, you know, throwing things up in the air. Um, given the complexity of the music and the choreography and the emotional tracks, uh, there hasn't been as much time as I would normally like for that sort of work. But we still had, a, you know, the, the first day of rehearsals was just the six lads who were in the rhythmic jazz team, essentially a day of physical exploration, mm-hmm. seeing what people's 
um, natural abilities were with the ribbons. There are some elements of set, these kind of little locker cubes that are in the space and, you know, how we could use those in a kind of playful and imaginative way. Um, and, uh, and also just, you know, there's a really, there's a really diverse range of abilities in the company in terms of physical impairments, in terms of age. Um, so, you know, some people are doing backflips, some people, you know, are in their 60s and there's and everything in between. Um, obviously, there are people in their 60s who can do backflips, probably, but not in this company. Um, so, so there was also that very gentle exploration of like, what are people's current limits physically, vocally, um, emotionally, in terms of where they can go to acting wise. Uh, and everyone was also learning a bit of sign language because there's sign language incorporated into the choreography. So that they had one day of like exploratory play. And then from then on, it was actually quite a rigid and rigorous like, uh, music calls, learning the music, choreography calls, learning choreo, staging. No one ever has enough time on the scenes. Everyone's like, can we do more time on the scenes? I'm like, no, the scenes are fine. We've got to make the numbers, you know, uh, yeah. shine. Um, but, you know, there is that thing of the book scenes are like a, a hyper-naturalistic, um, gritty, realist play. So, you know, it's not sort of just smiles and backflips yeah. the whole there's some really like heavy and you know quite traumatic emotional content in it. So so you do have to give time and space for people to get to those places and also make sure that the room feels really safe. And you know that like we've everyone's been traumatized by the last two years. So the last thing they need is a kind of revisiting you being asked to just pull out their like life trauma and like vomit it on stage. So I think like now more than ever, all directors I think have such a responsibility to make sure. The safe feel the, the space feels safe and like boundaried and all of that stuff. But no, it's it's very structured. And then you know, and we're in week four now, so basically we're just getting into doing runs, doing working notes. Um, we're having the zits tomorrow, so they'll sing it through with the band for the first time. So I'd love more time for like the discussion and the play and the kind of ideas at the edges of things. But I, the cast, I think I have tried to empower them to make as many offers as they feel able to make, you know, vocally, physically, choreographically. Uh, sometimes it's like a bit much and I'm like, okay, too many cooks, too many cooks, just let one person, you know. But I do like to foster a feeling of, um, it, it's in no way a devised show, but a, a feeling of, this is a completely original show. These, these actors are creating these characters for the first time. So they are gonna put their stamps on them in terms of, you know, maybe this one uh, has, and also bringing in their own lived experience. I've done a few little rewrites that that one of the cast members has really visible psoriasis. And he was like, we could write that in. And that could be a thing about why he um, has a lot of digital online community because of his shame and da, da, da. So that's a really beautiful thing. You know, obviously in future iterations of the show, the cast won't always have those lived experiences. So mm -hmm. I'll rewrite, do little rewrite tweaks again. But I really like to, it's so grounded in like, real lives and ordinary people that as much as I can I like to kind of rewrite stuff to fit the bodies that we have in the room and make it on those people again I guess having worked a lot in circus and dance where you you make it on the bodies that you have and mm. that's and embrace like accept the offer of this is this body and this is what it's capable of and therefore that's true for the character so no backflips for the 60 year old <laughs> time round. yeah <laughs> so talking about kind of responsibility to your your creators your artists your your individuals how, how, how do you kind of go about that rather like outside of just kind of keeping it in mind like is is there like certain practices that you have to 
to follow? That is a great question. Um, so part of it, I think, and this, I we're absolutely not like getting this right, and I don't want to be held up as like some sort of paragon of how to do this well because we're not, and we don't have the. I don't. I don't, I don't think there is a paragon. Like well, a no. I th sometimes people go, "Oh, you're like the gold standard for this, this, this," and I'm like, "We're absolutely not." No. I mean, we're absolutely not, and we don't have the funding or resource. But a thing that we have done, or a thing that I try really hard to do, is um, there's so there's so much invisible disability in our industry that is mental health, um, you know, invisible things that people are incredibly feel still feel taboo and are incredibly stigmatized. And really, even if people don't have to disclose any of that publicly, of course, but encouraging people to make us aware of that in advance so that we could go into the room knowing, you know, three of the cast have ADHD, one of the cast has like anxiety disorders, there's depression, there's chronic fatigue syndrome, there's cerebral palsy, there are like loads of additional needs. And um, a lot of those, and this, you know, again, we haven't got this totally right, and I don't, uh, I want to find a better system for doing this in the future, but making sure that all of that information is to be able to be disclosed to someone before the process starts mm -hmm. so that the room can be uh, the room can be resourced to accommodate those needs, but also so that the process can be structured to accommodate those needs. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can't have everything. You know, some of the people, their processing speeds mean they uh, they take a long time to to integrate and assimilate stuff. And other people, they integrate stuff really quickly and they're ready to move on. Um, one of the, you know, um, Mark, our choreographer, is deaf, which in a way is, is straightforward because his access needs are very upfront. So he has an interpreter. Um, Kinney, who is a, a cast member, is hard of hearing. So he can, um, he can communicate with everyone. But occasionally when there's a lot of noise in the room, that's a bit much for him. Mm -hmm. And silly things, but occasionally sometimes in the choreo, like, if he isn't thinking about it, like his hearing aid can fall off. So there's lots of like tiny things like that. Mm -hmm. So I mean, the big, I think the big thing is just trying to maintain an awareness of the fact that everyone, and this is true even if there aren't stated access needs in the company, everyone learns, works and processes things in a different way and at different speeds and respecting the, just the reality of that and constantly reminding people, you know, you don't need to be a hero if it's not within your gift to do a backflip or even to lift up that cue because you've got a spinal injury all you need to do is say I, I'm not able to do that and then we'll find a workaround but I think that there's such a toxic culture in theatre of the show must go on and sort of being in sacrifice mm -hmm. about about you know doing a thing anyway even though we know it's damaging us kind of mentally or physically or emotionally so I just I think all directors and anyone who sort of runs a company, it's incumbent on us to just make sure we're constantly checking in and going, do people feel okay? Do mm. people feel safe? Um, you know, again, there are some moments, and, and ironically, it's the, the guys who've been really vulnerable about this. There are some moments where like the guys take their tops off and that was sort of written in from day one and everyone in the audition was like, yeah, yeah, fine with it. And then we get to day one of rehearsals and they're like, do, can we not do that bit? And it's like, oh, but fine. Do you know what I mean? Like you need to feel comfortable and you need to feel safe on stage. And I'll just rewrite that so, you know, there's a different what mm. moment. Um, so I think it's just, yeah, the, the root of it is kindness. It's kindness yeah. and sort of compassion about the fact that not everyone, you know, we all, our brains all work in different ways. Our bodies all work in different ways. Every single one of us is, is different. And I think there's been such a culture of like this idea of uniformity of like, everyone does the same moves. Everyone does the same vocal track. Everyone does the same whatever almost to a kind of robotic 
level. And, and I think this is changing in drama schools, but it was certainly the case that there was this thing that, you know, you would, you would get your individuality almost tr trained out of you. And I, I think for me, I'm like, that's for me the exciting, like this, this absolutely unified community of really distinct, unique individuals who bring completely different ages, experience, abilities, lived experiences, um, everything. Mm. So for me, that's the joy of the show and the joy of making work. Mm. But that's my taste. Not everyone will agree. Yeah, okay. So it's kind of creating this atmosphere of kindness and sensitivity towards each other and letting relationships and letting, um, I guess, the process develop naturally as opposed yeah, to... Yeah, you know, and, and but balancing that with the fact that of course, you're the one who goes, right, we've got four weeks, those days of music calls, that week of dance calls, yeah. that staging, that thing runs, like that's the time we have. That's the thing that is sometimes where the, the friction comes, tension yeah. comes. Because of course, they're like, oh, can we just do scene work instead of doing a run? And, and I'm like, no, no, we're in week four. We've <laughs> got to do a run. I had a question about um, your theatre company because you've got like this section called Meta Green. Yes. And I wanted to ask you about that really, like where it came from and, and, and how you kind of keep that in mind as you produce work. Yeah. So, um, so my other half in life and in theatre, uh, Will Reynolds, is, has been an environmental activist his whole life and sort of comes from a family of that. Um, so that has always been a really big part of his practice. I think for everyone, that's much more in the forefront of our minds. Um, so one of the projects we have in development is a um, is explicitly a kind of climate crisis musical, which hopefully may happen next year. TBC, watch this space. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we've just been working kind of harder to integrate those sustainability practices into everything we do. So the rhythmics is is absolutely not about the climate crisis, but even that has a little bit of planet placement. So there'll be moments where the characters are perhaps uncharacteristically progressive in their environmental ideals but the point you know every universe and reality I create on stage is slightly idealistic and it's like you know this is a world where uh, everyone is a bit more climate woke and everyone is a you know and homophobia doesn't exist and this doesn't exist and, this doesn't exist. and it's sort of painting a like you know people still have emotional trauma but the world is a more compassionate tolerant you know mm. ethically engaged place you just sort of write the world you want to see to write it into existence. Um, so there's that, but also backstage, um, almost every costume has been sourced like vintage or secondhand and the same with props and the, and Will is the designer. And this is a huge responsibility on designers. You know, again, it's about ego. He's really happy to go, uh, these things exist secondhand. So I will use those in the set rather than having built, building something from scratch. So that's kind of one part of it for this production, but also separate to that, um, he like it's his it's his big it's his big passion probably more than theatre. So, in lockdown, one of the things we did was kind of set up Meta Green as its entire as an entirely like branch organisation to Meta Theatre, mm -hmm. and that exists to um, offer other organisations, arts organisations, or just general organisations, you know, uh, advice on environmental environmentally sustainable practices, um, carbon offsetting, uh, you know, calculating your uh, carbon footprint all of those sorts of things where um basically environmental consultancy um so he which is much more his thing i mean i'm here like parroting it but you know i'm he's the expert on that but he um so there are several 
companies, venues, uh, touring companies who sort of come to him and he can give them a bespoke, like for what you do, you know, for like for a touring company, the big thing is going to be transport. Mm. For a venue, you know, there are going to be different um, issues about where they need to sort of do the work. So, so that's, he sort of set that up as an entirely like separate, well, not separate, mm. but tangential arm to what we're doing, um, which I think is going to become sort of, a much bigger part of what we do over the next few years, you know, if if we are touch wood, uh, touch wood, um, lucky enough to get, you know, National Portfolio Arts Council funding in the next round, then I think that kind of consultancy work will be a really, a, an increasingly large part of our practice. Mm. What else can you kind of do and think about? Like you've talked about like sustainably sourcing sets and costumes, but is there stuff you can do to kind of, I don't know, reduce electrical use. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I think using, I mean, you know, lighting equipment, and this is, it's all heading this way anyway, but, you know, using LEDs mm-hmm. uses a lot less energy. Um, at the end of, a, I mean, this is an obvious one, but at the end of a run, I mean, I can't believe that this even still happens, but at the end of the run, you know, making sure that you put your set on set exchange or you put it in storage and it goes on to have another life rather than going to a skip. Um, is a sort of basic one a massive thing is um, and it's hard if you are not the venue but if you are the venue or you'll have a good relationship with the venue um, uh, working with them to encourage people to travel by public transport so several regional theatres they'll do like green Wednesdays where if you can show you came by bus you get a cheaper ticket Um, and obviously that's less relevant in London because the majority of people travel by public transport but it's just it's about like the the and this is why there's a bit of planet placement in everything right now, that um, it's about a culture, like I think one of the biggest impacts we can have as artists and theatre makers is, is shifting that culture change mm-hmm. so that, uh, you know, if you're reaching 2,000, 10,000, a million people with your show and those, and you give them the tools to make small changes in their life, or even you give them the tools to engage more in a, at an activism level and ultimately, I think that's going to affect more change than making sure every single costume is secondhand or blah, blah, blah. like I think we our capacity as artists is in changing the way people or provoking people to change the way they think and feel. So someone comes to you and says, Poppy, I want to be in theatre. I want to be a writer. I want to be a director. Um, what, what advice would you give them? Oh, advice. I love giving advice. Um, so my advice to writers is just, whoops, just, it's just throw your phone on the floor. No, my advice to writers is just uh, write stuff. Like it doesn't matter if it's not, not good or if you perceive it as not good, you're only going to get better by doing the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, it, and of course, I'm really blessed in not having that fear. So of course, fear is a real thing. But, you know, you don't even have to show that writing to other people, but that act of doing it, you know, that like writing something every day, finding a way to have a daily writing practice um, and just keep going and sort of, you know, surround yourself with people who are going to support you and encourage that journey. You know, not the kind like critical. I love critical friends and I really like the, the most useful thing for me is sharing work and having people go, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, this doesn't work. Um, but you have to be relatively emotionally robust to receive that. So knowing here's my supportive crew, they're, they're going to tell me the things that are going to make me want to keep going. That's my tip for writers. My tip for directors is 
in terms of breaking into this industry, I was really lucky. Well, I was really tenacious. So I researched the people whose work I liked and I wrote to them by hand with a handwritten letter that I would post to like stage door on press night when I knew they would be there. And maybe things have changed, but it's hard to respond to a million emails. But if I get a handwritten letter, I'm like, someone has taken a lot of effort there. So I generally at least go to the trouble of meeting them. And even if I can't offer them an assistant directing job, I can say, I can point them in the direction of training or I can point them in the direction of something. So I think like work out who your heroes are in the industry and then try and find a way to, to make contact with them. Uh, but it, it and, and keep your keep keep the faith <laughs> because it's hard it's harder than ever right now and i really feel for that for that emerging generation because no one has the capacity or the headspace to to be supportive in the way that they maybe once were but but don't give up otherwise we'll end up with an entire like missing generation of theater makers and that would be a shame yeah no, i completely agree it's the entire reason why we exist but um okay so takeaways don't let fear get in the way. Be kind, be compassionate, and well, just fucking go for it, really. <laughs> <laughs> just fucking go for it. Yeah. <laughs> just remember, I think, you know, always uh, in any um, situation, remember that the way that your brain works and the way that you process information will not necessarily be the same as someone else. So, things might be quick and easy for you, but they might be slow and hard for someone else. Or they might be slow and easy for you and quick and hard for someone else. There'll be any combination. Mm. And just remembering that not everyone sees the world, no one can see the world through your eyes and with your brain. Uh, and that, again, it comes back to the compassion piece, but just, you know, we can always be, kindness is a muscle. And, you know, everyone can work that muscle and get, you know, match fit at kindness and the world will be a better place for it. On that note, <laughs> that was such a good closing line. It was such a good closing line. <laughs> Bobby, thank you so much. It's been so lovely to chat with you and understand your brain. <laughs> this was lovely. Bye. Bye, Bobby. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Good Bad Mad podcast. Please subscribe to check out the next episode or leave a review if you liked it. You can find us on Instagram at goodbadmad or at goodbadmad.com for additional resources and information. See you next time.